0: When we started this podcast uh, a year ago in January, we did so as an experiment. We didn't know what was going to come of it. We didn't know if people would be interested in it. We didn't know if people would listen to it or download it or really even where we would go after episode five. All of it was an experiment, an experiment in creating a space where we could engage with difficult topics that would lead to really healthy and good conversations in other spaces. And honestly... That was basically it at the beginning. We knew what we wanted to do, and we knew the first couple of episodes, the things that we were going to talk about, but after that, we had no idea where we were going, where the topics would come from, or what we would do. And from that moment on, basically all of the things that we talked about or engaged with came from very real conversations that we were having in our house churches or with our friends and our family or just at bars. Like, that's where these conversations came from. But today the conversation that we're going to have on our final episode of season one is a conversation we have to have. One that not only does our current cultural moment require us to engage with, but maybe more importantly, the person of Jesus requires us to engage with it. And I think if we think about it in those terms, the person of Jesus compared to what has often actually been the silence of the church and even the complicity of the church in regards to this conversation means that we have to engage with it from a deep posture of humility, a deep posture of repentance and a deep commitment not to be silent anymore.
1: Sexual harassment scandals have engulfed Harvey Weinstein Senator Al Franken Canadian
0: Louis C.K. Unless you have been living under a rock, it is hard not to notice that over the last few weeks, a deluge of revelations have come out against powerful men and their abuse of their power in regards to sexual assault and sexual harassment. Actor Kevin Spacey Roy Moore today. Now, it is important to note that this is not new, but what is new is that people are listening. Look at what's happening with you. You call look that at, a tipping point. You it's call a a that a watershed point. moment.
1: Thousands posted the claims online using the simple phrase, me too. Sadly, this has been happening since the beginning of time, but now people are finally talking about it.
0: The courage of women who are telling their story for the first time is rocking our institutions and figures of power in a way that I don't think they've ever been rocked before. And it is forcing them to ask some important questions to think about sexual assault in a way they have never been required to because they've never suffered from it. And in a new way, a question is being laid at the feet of powerful people and institutions, and specifically, to the church and its members, which is, what are you going to do about this endemic My name is Johnny Morrison, and you're listening to The People's Theology, a podcast brought to you by Missy Day Community Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, that seeks to explore culture and theology like it matters because, well, it really does. For a long time, at least in my own experience, the church has been an unhelpful place when it comes to sexual assault and sexual harassment. Not only in many instances has the church been complicit and even perpetrators, but even in more normal situations, the church has not been a safe place to have conversations about sexual assault, to discuss it, to talk about it, let alone to even try to form people into a different kind of people who don't engage in sexual assaults and sexual harassment. And the tragedy is that when the church is not functioning in its true vocation of identifying with victims, it means that people are hurt and they are never formed into something else, right? I feel like that is part of the vocation of the church is to form a different kind of people who see the world differently, who engage with it differently, who think differently, who do not objectify others because we have been called family. And so, when we refuse our vocation or we refuse to talk about sexual assault or sexual harassment, then we're just seeding our ability to do any of these things well. And that has to stop. And I'm thankful that at MISIO, the community where I am, I feel like we're working hard to stop that. In large part because of one of the pastors on staff named Heather Thomas. And in today's episode, we're going to interview her and talk about what it looks like. To be the church who engages with these conversations well. And the hope is not just that we would have a theoretical conversation about what the church should be, but that this would begin something for you. Whether that's to be a better friend, to love someone better, to serve someone better, or to know that you have a space. Throughout the interview, I just asked Heather a series of questions and allowed her to dictate how we moved and where we went. And so the episode, will be broken up the same way through a series of questions. And the first question I asked, I think, is maybe the most important for starting the conversation, which is, what language or terms should we use to be respectful, to honor everyone involved in the conversation?
1: I think that's a a really good question and I think it's um, challenging to know how people who have experienced um, sexual abuse or sexual harassment, how those people as victims would want to be, um, how they would want to communicate what has happened to them. So in those moments... I think the terms are best left to the victim so that they can self-identify. And I'm not saying that I think I'm not saying that at certain moments there may be definitional language that would be offered, but I think it is important for somebody who has a story that they want to tell to be able to tell the story in the language that they at that juncture feel comfortable to communicate it with because there's there's a complication in being named. Um, and so, naming or labeling, not to say that it doesn't have a place um, because it does, but there's a delicate discerning reality that has to happen when you're listening to somebody's story. Um, yeah, so I think offering language, but letting somebody own the language when they're ready to own it.
0: Last week, in a conversation with Heather, she was talking about attentiveness. And how do you create spaces of attentiveness? And one of the things that she said is that judgment ruins attentiveness. And judgment being any kind of definitive declaration of something, true, false, good, or negative, it can ruin the space of attentiveness where you're trying to hear someone else's story and let them define their experience for themselves. You're not being attentive to them when you make judgments. You're only really being attentive to yourself. So don't give people language they haven't given to themselves unless they've asked for it.
1: In the vein of a perpetrator, I do think that is a place where there can be more clear, um, direct communication. Hmm. Because if someone isn't clear on what it is that they're doing and how that action is harming another, then I think it's very important that there is a clear definition about what action they're doing and how it is harming the person or persons that they are and acting um, sexual behavior towards that is um, harmful and destructive and abusive. So in those moments, I think giving language and um,
0: is vital. So with a perpetrator, definitions and titles... And language can be helpful to define what it is that has happened, to bring the reality of what has happened to the surface, so that everyone is on the same page, and so that perpetrators, who so often uh, misunderstand their own use of power, can see it. It also leads to attention, because that language, though maybe it confronts, it can't define even a perpetrator.
1: In that moment, what you're doing is you're clarifying behavior Um, because people are more than what they do and so while this person is doing something that is harmful and abusive they are more than that action and so it is important to make distinction that their behavior is not who they are and so the definition that you're giving is a definition of a behavior not of a sense of personhood people are far more far more than a set of experiences that they've been through. Um, While those are true and need to be heard and spoken of and seen, people are more nuanced than certain behaviours that they've either enacted on another or that they have um, had enacted upon them. Which is why I think it's very important in moments like this that The role of somebody who is companioning or being a friend to you or a spouse to you or um, a pastor to you or however you want to name it. like You are creating a moment where they are given a sense of agency to be able to communicate what it is that they have experienced and been through. And while you might want to offer particular kinds of languages that helps them, at the end of the day their self-revelation about what is happening is is going to cultivate a trust and a, like a spaciousness for them to explore um, what it is that has happened to them and how they feel about it and what they want to make of it and um, how they want to deal with it and what steps they want to take to move towards um, healing or forgiveness or just staying in a place of anger. But there has to be space um, given for all of those things to belong in the same
0: moment. That leads us to the second question, which is how does sexual assault and sexual harassment play itself out in people's lives? Because I think so often we don't understand the complexity or the layers to this reality. We think about maybe one moment or one thing, and that's it. But we don't think of how many things are actually happening or how many layers are actually at play or how much complexity is truly involved.
1: I would say the most common thing that is being experienced is shame. And shame is silencing. Yeah, being able to offer a person um, a place where they don't experience judgment or where they experience, um, where they are allowed to live into their own story um, and to own their own story is what will. Kind of get rid of the power of shame, because the power of shame keeps you hidden, it keeps you quiet
0: and it's confusing, like the whole experience, every part of it is confusing
1: Oh right, it's so confusing because when you've experienced sexual abuse, it doesn't necessarily all bad. like you could have an emotional connection with your abuser, you could have a physical, pleasurable experience with your abuser. And so to create categories that are black and white doesn't actually help the person that has been a victim of sexual abuse or assault. There could be, um, yeah, there's all sorts of complicated realities. And so to create a black and white naming of something um, doesn't help them to maneuver through. And then it often can keep a certain part of their story silent. Like if there was any kind of pleasure that was experienced or an emotional attachment or a friendship um, with a person that has subsequently abused you, or it's happened over a long period of time. Um, yeah, th- it is a complicated reality, and so for those people who are companioning and being friends with, um, creating categories where things have to be black and white or all good or all bad does not help somebody who has been victimized and experience the complexity of, of what that means in their story.
0: I was thinking about what Heather said in the context of stories about Louis C.K., who is a respected figure with a lot of power and clout, but also a lot of friendships and a lot of goodwill generated from people around him. And so there's this confusing tension that is created as he is exposed and people who are his exposers, the victims of his sexual assault, have to wrestle through that relationship with him and, and the way that it plays out in their own lives, and so does everyone around them have to wrestle through it and hold in tension the reality that he is both.
1: Well, and the question is often, was it my fault? especially when you haven't been in a relationship with somebody, like, oh, did I do something? Um, Is it my fault? Were the behaviors and actions? Um, And especially if the the abuser is asking there to be silenced because they're aware of what their behavior could mean for them in terms of consequences. And so then there's a loyalty that is being asked. Like, I need you to be silent to protect me. Um which again that just leaves all sorts of emotion and complexity in the heart and mind of the victim because yeah you have a you have a sense of loyalty towards this person and your speaking out could create a set of consequences for this person yeah. and then you would feel a sense of culpability towards that potentially um Especially when there is a relational connect, which most of the time there is. Which is why I think Sarah Silverman, her response was so perfect. Yeah. It's like, here's a man that I love, a man that I've seen be a good father, be a good dad, and be a good husband. And now I have to contend with the reality that he has done these things with other women that have been really destructive and harmed them. And the complexity of, like, not wanting um, to condone that behavior all while at the same time have vocally saying, but I love my friend. There's more to a person than, I mean, we've said this, than the actions that they do.
0: I think this is really powerful because it adds so much complexity to the experience of a victim. Again, we're good at naming maybe one piece of their experience, that they were violated or that they lost something. But can we recognize that the situation is so complicated, there's so many layers to it, that it is confusing. Can we see that that is actually a very heavy burden, a heavier burden than I think we have often imagined, placed on the shoulders of someone who has suffered?
1: I mean, the moment of saying me too um, is a hugely vulnerable statement, and there is so much behind those simple words. That people then have to contend with as victims.
0: This leads to the third question, which are what are the ways that we regularly perpetuate, enable, and foster the behavior and actions and pathologies of perpetrators? And maybe you could push that question even deeper and say, how do we form ourselves into perpetrators?
1: Well, I think um, even simple things where there are jokes or there are, I mean, that just feels so rudimentary, like language that we use um, that would objectify a woman, Mm. that would make her body something that can be reduced, um... The lack of culpability or accountability in those moments, like, I'm not going to talk about a woman in that way, or I'm not going to let you talk about a woman in that way. Um, So I think humor is a big one. Like, some things just aren't funny. There's a woman that often says, it's better to choose discomfort over resentment. You know, and there are moments where it's like, oh, that's totally like an awkward situation. And so whether as a woman or a man, I'm just going to laugh it off. But then later, you could resent that person for that comment. So it's in my mind, it's way better just to choose discomfort and be like, oh, I don't like I don't want you to talk about women in that way. I'm not comfortable with you talking about a man's body in that way. Or So there is th- language that we use that perpetuates um, sexualizing the other.
0: We do this in a lot of different ways whether it's the kind of the way we're taught in school or in churches or how we're raised. But one of the things that Heather talks about that, for me, was really powerful is we only have, like, one language of touch.
1: Because not all forms of touch need to be sexual. But I often think that that is the only form of touch that is talked about or encouraged or not encouraged, depending on the context in which you come from or you live. Um, And it was a woman that I know well who is a therapist, Celeste Tracy. She talked about the importance of developing healthy touch, Mm. non-sexualized touch. Um, There are moments where we need connection with a man or with another woman, and it doesn't have to be a sexual moment. It's a moment of one human understanding and seeing another, or one woman reaching out towards a man. And it doesn't always have to become a sexual reality, um so what does it look like for us rather than creating these parameters that lead to distinction like this is a, a woman and so she's other and so I cannot touch her because the only form of touch that I can give her is a sexual kind of touch like what does it look like to understand healthy forms of touch healthy forms of communication healthy forms of intimacy that don't lead to that which is destructive I think there are ways that we can do that as a people and as a culture and in our communities, that would actually help um, to desexualize relationships.
0: This totally makes sense to me because we spend so much of our time as kids in cloistered groups. I remember just as a kid that all of our play dates or all of our classes or any kind of conversation, specifically conversations around human sexuality, were split into separate genders. And so I feel like as a young person, you never learn anything other. It's like you actually, in an attempt to keep people safe, learn to objectify people.
1: It's when safety Like, the safety becomes primary, and so with safety then comes that we need to have this set of rules rather than what does discernment look like? Because discernment generally requires a lot more thoughtfulness and attentiveness and presence, where when you just kind of legislate something, like, oh, we're going to leave a door open, or not to say that those moments aren't wise, um, but I think discernment actually would fuel healthy interactions, male and female, more appropriately.
0: The fourth question comes from the stories that are being told right now. Right as I record this, Matt Lauer has just been fired because of sexual assault against female coworkers, and in each of these stories, whether it's Matt Lauer, whether it's Harvey Weinstein, whether it's Louis C.K., whether it's Al Franken, it is people of power who are wielding their power against women. And so, what is happening in that power dynamic?
1: The power dynamics in keeping a victim silent are huge. I mean, I think that comes most clearly in Harvey Weinstein. There is a clear form of power that he owns. Mm -hmm. He has the capacity to um, give people leverage. He has agency. He has monetary power. He has social power. Um, And so because of all of that, he had a lot of people for a long time that stayed silent. Because if they didn't, they were fearful of the repercussions that they would experience because of the power that he owned. And in my mind, that is a lot of the reason why, um, yeah, he was able to perpetuate this behavior over a significant amount of time because of the power dynamic that he owned.
0: And it's not just power over the victim. It's power over witnesses. People who knew what was going on in Weinstein's life. Because for Weinstein to do what he did, he actually had to have all of these complicit partners And yes, they were complicit. But they were also subjects to Weinstein's power.
1: There's a power dynamic at play, and you can take that into a family. There's a power dynamic at play, oftentimes in a familial setting, when abuse is taking place. Um, And it feels easier to turn the other way, look the other way, than it does to engage that power dynamic because it requires a lot to engage that kind of power dynamic. And of them, it could be loss.
0: Of all of the different people I've listened to respond to the Harvey Weinstein sexual assault, the only person I think has responded at all well is Quentin Tarantino. And not because he did what he should have done, but because he responded by recognizing that he didn't. He said in an interview that I knew enough to do more than I did. I wish I had taken responsibility for what I heard. And if I had done the work I should have done, I just simply wanted them worked with him. I think that's the best response, because he had power. He was responsible to use that power. But he didn't.
1: They should have used the power that they had. Like, to oppose it. Because Quentin Tarantino had his own, like, leveraging power that he could have used. So there's a sense of agency that we all have and so how do we use that agency to protect those who are those who are vulnerable and are being victimized and so if you have power um then I think it needs to be used and wielded in a way that is protective and is a voice or at least creates space I'm more I'm more apt to say that power should be used to create space so that voices can be heard rather than that power structure becoming the voice for those who are marginalized or victimized or quieted Um, because I think that can be its own abuse of power is becoming a spokesperson for the other but you can use your power to create a moment or give a platform Um, yeah and so that's as an adult protecting a child even if that child is not your own like if there is a child in your family that you know is experience any kind of sexual abuse you have a responsibility otherwise you are culpable along with the person that is victimizing the other if you have a place of power as an adult you become culpable if you do not use that power to protect so as a mother if you know the father is sexually abusing a child you have a responsibility to that child even if it means something will happen in your marriage or as a sibling, or as a coworker, you name
0: it. To me personally, as I think about one of the most tragic examples of complicit and culpable silence. It's the church. Who is as an institution not respected or heard or made room for the stories of victims, but has often even been culpable in using its power against victims both by its leadership and its institution and its structure.
1: Yeah when moments where we've quieted the victim or where we've told the victim that um, his or her story is going to cause too much of a a ripple in the community or whatever that's there's moments that's culpability for the church when we have tried to protect the status quo rather than wading into the difficulty of what these kinds of confessions could mean for families in the community, could mean for the community itself. Like when we try and keep comfortable rather than wading in um, to the messiness and the complexity of it, we become culpable. And then structurally and institutionally, I mean, when we are the, we are the perpetrators when leaders in churches who have power sexually abuse children um, and that we know those stories of people who are pastors and leaders and clerics and they have used that power to abuse. And when we haven't owned that and named that and confessed it, um, yeah, we're culpable.
0: Because the church has not historically responded well to sexual assault, sexual abuse, the stories of victims, the question for me underneath this entire interview is, well, what do we do going forward? How do we be better than this? I think that's the mandate of our call as followers of Jesus, think that the story of scripture leads us to something better. So what does it look like to be better, to use our power better, to always be for victims? How do we do better?
1: Yes, I think we should applaud that courage. I think as an institution, we should be the ones who are the most vocal about how we applaud the courage of these people who are victims and that they would be willing to communicate at a, like, broad level um, the things that have happened to them. We should be applauding that kind of vulnerability and that kind of courage as an institution. We should be the loudest voices. Um, that are applauding that and encouraging that and supporting that and championing that. Because that is a win. That kind of courage is a win. And it takes an enormous amount from a victim to, um, to even utter those two words, me too. And so we as an institution should be the most vocal about applauding that kind of vulnerability.
0: So if nothing else, the church should be an institution that celebrates the courage of victims that, as Heather says, uses its power to make space for other stories, to advocate for other stories, as opposed to tell their story for them. And then the question is, what do we do as individuals who are members of the church and friends and family members of people who have suffered? What do we do there?
1: A victim needs um, multiple things. Like like we said, it's a complicated reality that they live with. And at any moment... um, they could be reacting to a different set of complications that are are making life um, or shaping their lives in a particular kind of way. And so I think for friends or for family members, um, empathy is the most important um, kind of thing you can hold. And by empathy, I mean that you know how to sit alongside somebody. And so you can't fix anything, you can't problem solve somebody's abuse, or um, there may not be a clear trajectory um, for manoeuvring through the complexity of feelings and emotions and thoughts that they have. And so as a friend and a companion, your role is to be alongside so that they don't have to be alone in the things that they're feeling and thinking and working through, um... And so presence, being present. Um, Yeah, so being present, being alongside, um, creating space for them to voice what it is that they're thinking and feeling um, in its complexity, reflecting back what it is that you've heard so they know you understand them and that you sit with them. I think that's probably the most important thing. Like, You can reflect back the things that you've heard in order for somebody to feel understood and known and seen. Um, because that feels like a vital thing is for people to be seen, um, to encourage support, whether it's encouraging them to see a counsellor or to join a group where they can talk through and know that other people have experienced similar kinds of things, um, to go yourself to a group so that you understand what it means to be present and alongside somebody. There are things you can learn as a companion, um, So support groups for those who are family members of victims of abuse. Be intentional um, in terms of reading material. Um, Talking to other people who have experienced abuse. Not to say that any two stories are the same, um, but it will give you practice in being alongside.
0: It's easy to think that in this moment, what people need is for us to ask a lot of questions then in order to help them tell their story or they need a lot of encouragement, like judgments about how brave they are and courageous they are. And those things can be helpful, but it's about so much more than that. It's about listening to what's actually happening inside of the person.
1: Well, first of all, I think the, a person who has experienced um, abuse or any kind of victimization, there's going to be A need to cultivate trust and so knowing that the things that they share with you are confidential the things that they tell you won't be told to other people um that you can listen to them and reflect back what you've heard that you will make space for them in moments where they feel angry or in moments where they feel sad or in moments where they feel uncertain, moments where they are experiencing like a desire for suicide, Um, not retreating from any of those things, but moving towards. um, Those are moments where you will build trust and in building trust, then you become a person that is safe for them, to be able to tell these things that are inside them that have never found their way out. So it's a long game. It's not just, oh, yeah, I think that this friend has experienced that. Maybe I should just inquire. No, you, it's a long game. And so being a person that is trustworthy and showing somebody that you um, can hold the things that they're giving you without crumbling yourself or without throwing it back in their face in whatever way that could take a form of trying to offer a solution. or Yeah, you, yeah be a trustworthy person.
0: There is no easy description of how this happens or how this plays out. No way to tell you a system or a series of steps in order to love someone well. Presence is a thing that we learn and practice. And it's not just about asking a bunch of questions, because that can actually be difficult and hurtful. Instead, what Heather will say is that it is about learning discernment.
1: You know, um, questions can feel aggressive they can feel intrusive um not to say that there's never space for question um but yeah i think discernment is needed and everybody is going to need something different each person that has experienced abuse is likely going to need something different and the 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 single person that you're is in your life may need something different on any given day depending on how a circumstance has triggered them or depending on what they're feeling, and so discernment is needed to know how to move towards them. And they might not always know either what is needed, or what they need, or why they need what they need.
0: The final question that I asked Heather comes from a struggle that I've just been working through about how we process and work through so much of this. And it comes down to the nature of the church which is that I believe that in the gospel, we are meant to be an institution of reconciliation. An institution that is always about identifying with victims. It always is about fighting for victims. That is about justice, but that in its pursuit of justice, it pushes all the way to the end about how are bad things made right. And so how are bad things reconciled back together? The church is both an institution of safety and protection but it is always also an institution of mercy so how do we live in the middle of those two things in the midst of victims and perpetrators
1: i think of the church in rwanda where they um they are in the front lines of being able to show what it looks like to be both perpetrator and victim in the same space so, as family members who have been uh, murdered by other folks who are in the church community, like they've had to work at forgiveness and reconciliation in a way that is healthy and um, open and honest and real and raw. And so in some ways, I think there are churches internationally that we could learn from. but as a church, we need I think we should be able to be communicating the gospel in such a way that as both... Victim and perpetrator, there is space um, to belong and to be seen and to be known. Not that that dismisses any kind of action, but that um, mercy, yeah, that mercy is, there is a place for mercy. And like I said, that comes after a considerable amount of time of acknowledging pain and of owning and taking responsibility and um, But with those things, what does it look like to extend mercy? So that as an institution and as a community, we can be people that embrace um, both, because that is the complexity and the paradox of the gospel, that we are both perpetrator and victim at the same time. And the gospel creates... Um, a loving response a merciful response not without accountability um, but there is room for both
0: so what are we left with today after this conversation with Heather what are we as Christians members of the church and the church left with Well, I think if we were to boil it down into something simple, we have a commission to be the church who is always for victims, who is always for those who have been hurt, who those who have suffered on the wrong side of injustice, that we are supposed to be for them. That the church should be a place of safety where space is made available. I think that a good way to think about the church is to think of us as witnesses. Stanley Hauerwas defines the church as a community of witness. So if we are to be a community of witnesses, how do we witness? And I think that means advocating and telling the story of people who have been the victims of sexual assault. And it means that we are never complicit or culpable in sexual assault. But even in those moments, in those moments with Weinstein, we are not Silent Witnesses. But on the other side, as a community of reconciliation, it means that we are also a people of mercy who believe in the power of restoration. And that well, that's a tension that we have to learn to live in, one that we have to learn to live in well, where we don't just welcome all people's back without any form of truth or without any form of accountability or without any form of diagnostics. Like, the community of the faith should do those things too, but what does it mean to walk through the process of reconciliation where truth is told, victims protected, and mercy extended? You've been listening to The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Dei Community in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information about the podcast or about the church, check out our website at www.missioutah.com. This episode is our final episode for 2017 and season one. And so first off, I just want to thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for reviewing. When We started the podcast a year ago. We said this at the beginning. We had no idea where it was going to go. And the stories that have been told as I talk to people about the show have just been awesome. People who talk about listening to it and then having dinner conversations or sending it to people that are their friends and their family who are not Christians or Christians wrestling or sending it to their family members who don't believe so they can all gather on the table to have conversations. That was the hope. That was the purpose. And I'm so excited that it's doing that, and i love to hear your story. So please continue to tell me those things. and Thank you. For season two, which will start next year, I'd love to know what you want us to talk about. This whole year has been decided by conversations that we've had, but if you have something that you want to talk about that you think is a big issue, would you email me and let me know? You can email me at podcast at missiodeislc.com. M-I-S-S-I-O-D-E-I-S-L-C.com. And as always, would you go rate us on iTunes, share it with a friend, and then check back in 2018. We'll see you for season two.